So if you have a physical Bible, I'm going to ask you to get it out. We're going to be in the book of John, chapter 5. So the Bible is split into two Testaments, Old Testament, New Testament. John is in the New Testament meaning this is after Jesus has come to earth, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Use your table of contents if you need it. We're in John 5. And as you're working there, I just want to ask you uh, an opening question, really simple. Have you ever had a problem that you thought was small, but over the course of time you realize that it was much bigger than you initially thought? Like, man, this really small thing, but then as time passes, you're like, huh, maybe it's not so small after all. As I think back to answer this question myself, I think about my junior year at Iowa State. It's April of 2013, and I was an exercise science major at Iowa State, and one of the things we did for a class project is we traveled down to Des Moines to look at all of these corporations that had gyms on their work site. And so we would go to, like, the John Deere's of the world and see these, like, immaculate workout facilities. Well, given that I'm 5'7", and I think at the time I weighed, like, 140 pounds, I was the smallest person in my car. And so I got put in the trunk of a Chevy Equinox. Yeah, I'm just, you know, curled up in the ball in the back, riding like this, and I think nothing of it. It's cool. Until later that night, I'm like, my butt hurts. Like... My tailbone was kind of hurting a little bit, and I was just like, hey, maybe I just sat on my tailbone for too long, right? A little weird, bunched up in the back of an equinox. Well, the next morning I wake up, and I'm like, it still hurts. Like, this didn't go away overnight. In fact, it got worse. I was training to run long distance at the time and was used to running, I mean, at least an hour on a treadmill. I went to the gym that day and couldn't run 20 minutes. And by that night, I'm not kidding you, I was like bedridden. I was in so much pain that I couldn't get out of bed. And so the next morning, I wake up and I'm like, surely it's going to be gone. No, it's still there. So I go to the hospital and before you know it, I'm being told, hey, you have a, you have a chronic condition that you actually have cysts in your spine and you're going to need to have surgery. So it started with like a little pain in the butt, literally, <laughs> to hey, you need to have surgery to have cysts removed from your spine. And oh yeah, by the way, you're probably going to have this for life. And this is like a week before finals. You can imagine how overwhelmed I felt, right? It's like surgery, finals week. I mean, I cared a lot about school at the time, and so it meant a lot more to me. And I think the reality is that's true of all of us tonight. Maybe we just haven't recognized it yet that we all know that we have problems going on in our life, like we live in a broken world. But as we enter into John 5 tonight, I think we need to realize, like, our problem is actually a lot bigger than we recognize. So John 5, I'm just going to start in verse 1. Verses will be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. So I'm just going to start reading. We'll talk about it, okay? John 5, verse 1. It says, after this, so Jesus had been in Cana. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is, in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, or you could say porches. And in these lay a multitude of invalids. They were blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 
okay? That's two freshmen in college lifetimes, all right? 19 times two, good math, 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Here's what's going on, okay? Jesus has shown up to Jerusalem, and in the northeast corner of town, there is this pool called Bethesda. And it's actually two trapezoid-shaped pools that are separated by like 20 feet, And so there's porches all the way around them, and there's actually a porch in between them. And this is where all the outcasts of society would come. And here's why. They believed that if they could actually get into this pool, that they would be healed of their sickness. And there's actually a lot of superstition around it, because these pools were sourced from underground springs. And so as soon as the spring would bubble, the water would actually kind of look like it was being stirred. And these people were like, an angel is like stirring this pool up. And if we can just get in and experience the powerful touch of an angel, we might be healed. And there's actually reason to believe that there were people that had gone into this pool before and had experienced healing. And scientifically, it's actually like, hey, there's a good chance that this water was so high in mineral content that people with serious joint issues could have experienced some form of relief or healing. But this dude, 38 years. 38 years. And it doesn't give us his exact condition. It just says he had been an invalid. And with that, the assumption is he's paralyzed. So this man has been paralyzed for 38 years. And disability in biblical age mattered a ton, okay? If you were disabled, you were not just a social outcast. People thought you were so screwed up. You were religiously an outcast. You could not show up to the temple and worship because you were considered to be filthy and tainted. And so this man is 38 years coming to this pool hoping that he can experience healing, and he can't even get himself in the water because he's paralyzed. And so clearly he needs someone to help him get into the water, and by the time people get over there to help him get into the water, guess what? Other people beat him into the pool. This has been going on for so long. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around it. (laughs) Like Americans today, let's be real, fast food, Right? You end up in Wendy's drive-thru over here on First Ave. You sit in that drive-thru for more than three minutes, and you're like, what the heck? I thought this was fast food. Like, this isn't fast. What's fast about this? You order your textbooks on Amazon Prime, and it takes you like two and a half days, and you're like, Amazon promised me less than two. What the heck's going on? We don't have an understanding of waiting for something for 38 years, let alone when our entire reputation is on the line. Like, to, to be an outcast and to say, you can never approach God, you can't go to the temple, you have no purpose because you can't actually contribute to society, and your community are just a bunch of people like you. And so when Jesus asked this question, like, do you want to be healed? It seems like a pretty obvious answer, doesn't it? Like, do you want to be healed? I mean, if I was this guy, it's like, yeah, why wouldn't I want to be healed? Look at me. I've been this way for 38 years. 
But if you actually begin to think about it, his healing is going to cost him something. Because it's one thing to say, hey, I don't have community and I don't have purpose because I'm physically unable to have community. I'm physically unable to have purpose because of my condition. What happens if he becomes able? Right? If he has his health restored to him and now it's like, now who are your friend group? Now what's your purpose? What are you going to do for work? Because you've, get, you've been begging for nearly four decades. Now are you ready to be healed? But those are only questions that would make sense if healing was possible. Because to this man, healing looks impossible, right? Four decades, he's been waiting forever. It still hasn't happened. But then you have to keep reading. You have to see what Jesus does here. In verse 8, Jesus said to him, said to the invalid, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And verse 9 says, And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Okay, the exercise science man in me is like, this is ridiculous. Have any of you ever had a cast on like a, a leg, an arm, anything like that before? Okay, what happens when you can't use it for like six months? It's like jello, right? Like it's called atrophy. Your muscles just literally like shrink and shrivel. And so for 38 years, this man's body has been atrophied no muscle tone, and Jesus speaks a word to him and is like, get up, pick up your bed and walk. And he does. Instant healing. It's like, wow. That seemed like a big deal. Like, a minute ago, reading the story, this man's paralyzed for four decades, and Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And boom, he's healed. That's amazing. And that should be enough reason for us to lean in and be like, wow, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? But the reality is, his ability to heal is actually so much bigger than healing a paralyzed man that has been that way for four decades. Because if you keep reading in this story, in verses 13 and 14, it says this, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, he didn't know who healed him because Jesus had withdrawn into the crowds. And there was a crowd in the place. Verse 14, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. Think about it. This is this man's first time in the temple in four decades. He's probably there just like, man, I just want to check out this God thing and experience it. He's just there to figure out how he can praise this God. And Jesus says to him, see, you are well Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. We actually learn in John 5 that this man's illness was connected to a sin issue. And that's not always the case, because if you read further into the book of John, you'll see in John 9, there was a man born blind, and people are like, what did he do wrong? And Jesus says, he didn't do anything wrong. He was born this way so that the power of God might be put on display in him. But in John 5, we see this man had a sin problem. And actually, as we read our Bibles, in Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Meaning, every single person in this room, you have failed to live a perfect life. The word sin simply means to miss the mark. And if the standard is God, like God in his perfection and glory and beauty, he says, hey, here's the standard that I want you to meet. 
we do not measure up. I mean, if any of you have ever had a friend, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, you figure out pretty quickly, they're jacked up, right? And then it's like, hey, shocker, you're also the jacked up friend, boyfriend or girlfriend. You're not perfect. We all understand that. But in Jesus' healing here, what he's trying to say is, hey, this healing is about so much more than your physical body. Because you have a soul-level sickness that needs healed. And doctors and medicine and maybe mineral springs can provide some healing, but only God can heal your soul. Only God can forgive your sins. And what Jesus is actually showing here in this passage is that he is God. Okay, verse 9 I don't know if you noticed this or not, but at the end of that verse it says, now that day was the Sabbath. That day was the Sabbath. And so he had created an uproar by healing on the Sabbath. Because the religious lead of that day, they said, hey, Sabbath means rest. We can't do anything on the Sabbath. Like this man that was healed after four decades of being paralyzed, like picks up his mat and starts walking, and they're like, what are you doing carrying your mat? Like, is that seriously your first instinct? You see a dude healed and you're like, hey, put your mat down. That's breaking the Sabbath. And then Jesus healing this man, they're like, what are you doing healing a paralyzed man? It's the Sabbath. Get real, okay? But the religious elite, here's what they actually said about the Sabbath. There is one who can work on the Sabbath. It is God. Because God is required to work on the Sabbath. In fact, if God were to take a day off, the universe would cease to exist. And so by Jesus healing on the Sabbath, he is saying, I am God. We actually read that in verses 15 through 18. It says, The man went away and told the Jews, the religious elite, that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. See that? Verse 18, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is showing his true nature here. He says, I'm not just a man that can do miracles. I am the divine son of God. And if you begin to actually look into your Bible a little bit more, you would understand that in the book of Isaiah, written thousands of years before Jesus steps foot on the earth, it says the Messiah, Isaiah 35, 6, is going to heal the lame. Isaiah 53, 5, it says the Messiah is, Messiah is going to forgive sins foreshadowing that Jesus would come and do this very thing. And you know what the crazy thing is? As I've just began to sit in this text a little bit more and look at it, Jesus doesn't just heal any man. He heals a man that was actually an enemy of his. Because contextually, this man was a Gentile, meaning he didn't belong to God's quote-unquote, chosen people of Israel. He was a social outsider. And on top of that, in verse 15, it says the man went away and told the people that were persecuting Jesus, this is who did it. He's blame-shifting to get out of his own Sabbath-breaking 
which is going to lead to them wanting to kill Jesus. This was not his worshipful response to Jesus saying like, oh, thank you for healing me after four years of paral- 40 years of paralysis. He was saying, no, this is the man that did it. Go kill him. Can you just begin to fathom like the love of God that would move towards this man who is an enemy and a backstabber? And Jesus says, no, I want to heal you and I want to forgive you. And the reality is, Salt Company, this man's story is our story. This paralytic in John 5 is true of you and me. His story is our story. There's this book in the Bible called Ephesians. Okay, I just want to read to you what God says to us in Ephesians 2 about our state. Okay, Ephesians 2 starting in verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is your spiritual condition apart from the work of Jesus Christ. You think about a man who is paralyzed, that cannot get himself to be healed. That is us. How many of you have ever seen somebody that is dead? I know I have. I saw my great-grandmother within moments of her passing. And to look at her lifeless body and to say, okay, how ridiculous is it to think that she would be able to move, stand up, do something? It's impossible And that's how the Bible describes us spiritually, to say you are dead. Not just like you need a hand to get in the pool. No, you're paralyzed. This terrible triad here. You see, we are a prison to the world. Okay? The way of culture presses against the way of Jesus. And then right after that, the devil There is actually a supernatural force that exists among us that is saying, do not follow God. And the last of the three is actually what the Bible calls the flesh, which means it's not just an external pressure of culture. It's not just a supernatural pressure of the devil. Deep down within us, we want to rebel against God. We want to do what best suits us. And so you put those three things together and you stir it up and you are left spiritually dead. That's tragic. And I think if you're anything like me, if you're anything like I was, especially as a college student, you are just like the paralyzed man going to the pool of Bethesda too. Your issue is so much bigger than gossip or greed or lying or drinking or sexual immorality. Your issue is that you've been separated from a holy God. And you're running to the pool of academics, career path, relationships, pleasure through substance abuse, belonging through the party scene, you name it. You're running to all of these different pools, hoping that they are going to fill this God-sized hole in your heart that they were never meant to fill. Feels pretty hopeless. And the reality is, we can't fix this God-sized hole in our heart. But the good news is, 
You're not asked to fix it. If you keep reading in Ephesians 2, here's what it says. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And Jesus raised us up. We were seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Just like the paralyzed man who could not get himself into a pool, He could not find somebody else to carry him in. He could not heal himself. What does Jesus do? He moves towards him. Jesus is the initiator. And Jesus speaks a word of healing over this man's life and says, get up, be healed. That is exactly what Jesus has done for you and me. And the reality is, he hasn't done this because you're kind of good. Or you're more moral or maybe you've had a better life than other people that you look out at and you say, wow, they're so wicked. No. Remember, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We were all dead. There is not one righteous person that has walked the face of the planet. And that's why these words mercy and grace are showing up in Ephesians 2. The word mercy actually means not getting what you do deserve. To not get what you do deserve. And you know what we deserve? We deserve judgment. A holy God who is a good judge actually deserves to punish us because we have rebelled against him. But it says God is rich in mercy, meaning he does not want to punish his people. And then grace. By grace you have been saved. One definition is unmerited favor. Or another way you can say it is getting what you don't deserve getting what you don't deserve, to be declared righteous in the sight of God. That's what Jesus has done for you. By stepping out of heaven, putting on flesh, living a perfect, blameless, sinless life, and then stepping up onto a criminal's cross, being whipped and shredded and pierced and killed, He took on the wrath of God that you and me rightfully deserve, and three days later, he rises from the dead. His resurrection actually has historical evidence to say Jesus is literally defeating sin, Satan, and death. And so he's coming to you, and he's saying, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And again, he's not saying that to you as just an ordinary person who goes to Coe College or Mount Mercy or Kirkwood, okay? This is what the Bible says in Romans 5, okay? It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Like, man, if we were a really good person, maybe we would die for somebody that was really good to us. But it says this, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified or made righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, 
much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The Bible is telling you, when you were an enemy of God, when you were a sinner, when you had nothing to offer God, here is what he did. He knew that, and he wasn't ashamed of you. He wasn't afraid of you. He stepped in, knowing the brokenness of your life, and he said, I am going to pay for this person. This is someone that is worthy of shedding my blood for because I love them. Not because they are a lovable or a lovely people, but because I love them. That is what Jesus has done. And so this story of John 5, this story that's our story, actually shows us that you and me, we are more helpless than we know. But at the same time, Jesus' healing is far greater than we could ever imagine. We are more helpless than we know, and Jesus' healing is far greater than anything we could ever imagine. We have been so tainted by morality that we think, for whatever reason, we deserve to go to heaven, and that's just not true. But Jesus has made a way. And so the question that I am forced to ask you and that I am forced to ask myself every single day is, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Notice the question is not, can Jesus heal you? Because we already know the answer to that. He already, 2,000 years ago, lived, died, and rose again to show you that his healing for your life is effective. And I stand before you as a 30-year-old man who nine years ago was healed by the grace of Jesus Christ. As a man who had no hope, a man who had strayed far from God in sexual immorality, drunkenness, even like good things, the pursuit of finding my identity in grades or belonging or friendships. I was crushed by the weight of that. And Jesus showed up to me in March of 2013 and said, stop trying to measure up. You can never measure up for God. Here's why. You were never made to measure up. Because that's exactly why Jesus had to step down to you. So it's not about you working your way up to God. It's about God coming down to you, putting on flesh, dying and rising again, that you might be reconciled or made right with God, that you might have a restored relationship with him. And so, do you want to be healed? Our answer should be yes, but if we're honest with ourselves, we're looking at this cost of following Jesus and we're saying, it's going to cost me something. It's going to change my weekend plans. It's going to change my friend group. It might change my relationship with my family. It might change my career path. It might change everything. Following Jesus is going to cost you something. But if you don't understand what Jesus says to this man... Okay, in verse 14, he says, Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Nothing worse than four de 40 decades of paralysis. He's saying, if you keep living in sin, something worse is going to happen to you. And he's talking about eternal judgment. And I just want to tell you, okay, this message of the Bible, the bad news makes sense of the good news. It's like following Jesus is going to cost you something, but not following Jesus is going to cost you everything. And we are here on this earth for such a short amount of time. Average lifespan is like 84 years, and for whatever reason, declining in the year of 2022. I don't understand. 
But we're talking about eternity here. Like a million years from now, are you going to be concerned about giving up partying for the sake of following Jesus? I'm telling you, the answer is no. And so will you make a decision today, tomorrow, this week, this next week, the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years, Lord willing, to say, Jesus, I want to be healed, and it's going to cost me, but you're worth it. And like this man, okay, you may have remembered, I said, the two biggest things that it's, it's going to cost him is community and purpose. And I'm here to tell you, following Jesus is going to cost you community. You're going to have friends, you're going to have family members that are going to say, what the heck happened to you? Who are you? What have you done? Why aren't you doing this with us anymore? And you're not some hyper-religious person that's saying, oh yeah, I'm way better than you now. You're saying, no, Jesus has made me new. He's changed my heart's desires. And that will create conflict. But I'm also here to tell you, we have community here, okay? This is a family I don't just talk about we are a family, not an event. We are genuinely a family. There are people here that you can look in the face and you can say, hey, I just had the worst week of my life. You wouldn't believe what happened to me. And this group is going to be there for you. And they're going to care for you. And they're going to refresh you in what's true. They're not going to turn you away. They're not going to cast you out. They're going to care for you. And so actually, if we're going to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, I'm telling you, you need this community. Because following Jesus is going to be hard. And then the last thing is purpose, right? Like, wow, man, if, if I'm going to follow Jesus and he's going to change my career path, he's going to change my purpose, what is my purpose now? I'm telling you, there is no greater purpose to give your life to if you were to step foot on your campus and tell someone, hey, if I told you there was a God that was in control of this entire universe and you could have a relationship with him, you could personally communicate with him, you could talk to him in such a way that he changes your life, he changes your circumstances, he works things together for your good, would you want to know him? The answer is yes, of course. And that's what we get to do as followers of Jesus. We get to step foot onto our campuses and we get to tell people, you would not believe what I just experienced. You would not believe what I just heard. You would not believe the good news of Jesus Christ. That he has actually lived out and risen, that we can have a relationship with the God of the universe. And you get to be a part of changing somebody's eternity. Again, not just helping them fight against their drinking problem. You get to help this dead spiritual heart come to life in God by simply sharing who Jesus is with them. There is no greater purpose that you can give your life to. And so as a family, Salt Company, I just want us to bow our heads. I want to pray over you because this is weighty, right? Like, do you want to be healed? This is a big deal, and I want to pray that God would actually soften our hearts to be able to say yes, because it's going to be costly. So bow your heads. I'll pray for us. Father, you are a good God. God, and even in saying that, I know there are people in this room that are doubting your goodness. Um, they've had a hell of a life, literally, like they can't even begin to wrap their minds around the tragedies that have happened to them or people around them. But 
I'm grateful that we serve a God that knows what it's like to suffer. Because God, you were not far off, you were not distant, you did not just sit up in the clouds and wait for us to try and work our way to you. You put on flesh. You came down to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, you suffered more than any of us ever have or ever will. You were stripped naked publicly. You were beaten. You suffered physically more than any of us ever will. But more than that, you knew what it was like to be separated from God on the cross for your father to feel so distant when you had been near to him from an eternity past to feel separated from God. Jesus, I'm grateful that you know exactly what we've been through. You know where we've been, you know what we've done, and you're not ashamed to call us your children. You're not ashamed to to bear the cross while we're sinners, while we're enemies, while we have nothing to offer you. Jesus, you came, you lived, you died, you rose again, that we might actually be restored unto you. And so, God, I pray for us tonight that we would actually begin to recognize how helpless we are like this paralyzed man who can't find healing in anything else but you, Jesus, would you help us realize that we can't be healed apart from you? And with that, Jesus, as as much as you just spoke to this man and healing was restored to his body, would you be healing us tonight spiritually? Would you be taking people that were spiritually dead when they came in and make them alive in you by helping them trust in you alone, Jesus? to stop relying on their own efforts to work their way to you, but to understand that's exactly why you came in their place. And God, from that place, help us say yes to your healing, knowing that it's gonna cost us something, but God, to not say yes will cost us everything. And we recognize that tonight. Help our students find community here. Help us find purpose in living out your call in their life. And God, we want to do this not for the name of Salt Company, not for our own individual good even, but for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.